Well, God bless you guys, and welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Since we finished up First and Second Peter, we're going to take a special break this week, and we're going to do a special topical message. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 46 through 56. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Calvin is going to get up right now and get Bibles to people. Anybody need a Bible? He got up, so someone need to raise their hand. There, okay, right over here. Made him get up, so. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 46 through 56 this morning. Oh, keep more over here, Calvin. Bibles from that side. Those are better Bibles than the ones over there. That's right. Luke, chapter 9. Starting in verse 46, we read, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and said to him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. The title of my message this morning is Discipling the Disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and know, Lord God, it's your desire to speak to our hearts, to give us not only information, but application in our lives that would change us and draw us closer to our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for this sweet time of worship that we've had, Lord, and now we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would not leave here without making that commitment to you. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for the time of communion that we're going to share with at the end of this study, Lord God. And we pray, Lord, through all that you're glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think most of us have in our minds what we picture what the disciples might have looked like. You know, what, what do you picture? I mean, perhaps guys with these long beards and long robes and these deep-set eyes, always thinking deep theological thoughts, with their deep voices speaking deep spiritual sayings to match their deep-set eyes, very deep. Maybe you get a picture like this, you know, up here, you know, a lot of Artist renditions, they, they take on the times in which they're painted. Uh, and a lot of the early Renaissance pictures look like this with, you know, Jesus in the middle and his disciples all sitting around looking very, very stoic. 
In reality, that's what's portrayed in, in, in the movies or in Sunday school, in the curriculum, when it comes to thinking about these great men of faith. But I think when a person really studies the Scripture, you, you realize a completely different picture is painted of these men. In fact, what you find out is that they look and act an awful lot like us. Their character, their spiritual condition, their behavior and style, these guys strike a close resemblance to you and to me. Okay, you can take the picture down now, please. Please. <laughs> but often, as, as we read through the scriptures, what we have in every gospel record really is a discipleship program, kind of what Dan was talking about earlier. It, it, this is the, the first graduating class, if you would, that the Lord was discipling as, as these men, they were learning and they were growing. And at this point in Luke's gospel, Chapter 9, they've been in this discipleship program for about two and a half years. They're in the process of growing and learning and they're challenged and, and they're stretched and learning lesson after lesson, sitting under Jesus, listening to and hanging on to every word that comes out of his mouth. So after two and a half years, you think, well, they've got to have it all together. I mean, they've got to have it all down. Surely after two and a half years, they've got it down. Then we read in verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Oh, check it out. They're, they're arguing. And they're not just arguing about who caught the biggest fish or whatever. They're, they're arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. See, what we have before us are three scenes that reveal to us the disciples' true colors. Three scenes that reveal to us that after two and a half years of these guys being together that they really didn't have it all together. Three scenes that reveal three aspects of their character and their spiritual condition, showing to us that, that something was missing. And it's showing to us that we are an awful lot like them. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things that they needed to learn, three things they needed. Number one was humility. Number two is discernment. And number three is compassion. And if you take into account the previous chapter, you'd see that they were also needing faith as they couldn't cast the demon out of this father's son. But the great thing that we learn uh, from them is that even though the disciples were faithless, Jesus is faithful. He remains faithful. He did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And in the process, they learned some very valuable lessons. You know, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God's Word, Scripture, is given to us for doctrine. Doctrine means teaching what is right. For reproof, reproof is for what is not right. For correction, correction is how to get right and for instruction, how to stay right. And that's what happens to each one of us as we dig into the Scriptures, as we spend time in God's Word. We allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Those, three, those four things are always present. Do we learn a doctrine? Sometimes, yeah, we, we, we face reproof, we were corrected, and we're instructed. And that's what Jesus, the living Word, is doing here with His disciples. He's discipling His disciples in those four ways. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. And we'll see it as we go along in each one of these scenes. 
Because Jesus is bringing his disciples into that place of spiritual maturity and growth. He knows what they need, and he is there to meet those needs in their lives. And that's my prayer this morning, that as we look at God's word in these three, these three scenes, that we would be open to what God has for us this morning, just as the disciples were so long ago. Now, before we look at the first scene, let's go back up to verse 44. Jesus had just cast out a demon in this boy in verses 37 through 42. And no doubt the disciples and the crowds, they were pretty excited about the Lord's power. So Jesus used this moment for instruction to remind his disciples of why he really came, where he was going, and the fact that there was a cross in his future. Look back at verse 44. Jesus says, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. In other words, slow down with all this excitement about what you've just seen. I'm not going to set up my kingdom right now. He goes on in verse 45. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did, they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Now, this was not the Lord hiding it from their eyes, causing them not the, to understand the information. Rather, it was their own preconceived ideas about what the ministry of Jesus was to be about and what he was seeking to accomplish, that they did not perceive it. See, they were thinking rule and reign. They were still thinking kingdom now, not kingdom come. After all, they were hanging out with King Jesus. I mean, the king of Israel. And when you study the gospel records as a whole, you see that this was very much on their mind. They thought their Messiah was a king who was going to rally the people together, together to overthrow the Roman oppression. But you see, Jesus was preaching the cross. He's been telling his disciples that he would be betrayed and that he would, was going to die and rise again on the third day. But they just didn't get it, mainly all because of their preconceived ideas of what was really supposed to take place. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, that is really so much like you and I. How many times do we miss out on the blessings that, that God has for us in our lives because of some preconceived ideas and we don't take that step of faith? We, we think things are going to be a certain way and we don't go or we don't get involved only to find out later how blessed people were uh, that did go. And we can really miss out on some blessings that the Lord might want to do in our lives. You know, maybe it's hosting the Harvest Crusade next Sunday in your home and, oh, I don't know, you know, that, that might be weird inviting people over. Hey, it just might be an opportunity for someone to give their life to Jesus Christ. You don't know. Maybe it's teaching in a children's ministry and you think, well, it's going to be this way, it's going to be that way. I don't know if I want to get involved only to find out later how blessed those that are involved in the children's ministry really are. Maybe it's an opportunity to go and visit to the convalescent hospital next Sunday. Maybe you have some preconceived ideas how it would be. Listen, I assure you, if you take that step of faith and go, you'll come away from it blessed by God for the opportunity and the privilege that you have to minister. You know, about, about four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, I got a text from Pastor West Denham. He pastors a church up in Troy, Missouri, up by St. Louis. And the, all the text said was, I have a friend from Uganda wanting to come out and visit in Springfield. Can you set up a place for them to stay? That was his text. I thought, well, I know Wes. You know, I, I have no idea what's going to happen, how it's going to be. You know, I, I, sure. And so, so I thought, all right. And 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 so, come to find out, and I, I shared this uh, earlier. You know that 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 you know it, it wasn't just uh, Ken and Monica, but their their whole family and the friends, and it's just been awesome. 
It's been awesome. You know, my mind, I have these preconceived, I, what's, I don't know these people. We can put them all in the basement. I, I, I don't know what's going to be. I, it's it's going to be weird. I, I don't know, you know. And it has just been incredibly a blessing for us. But if someone would have told me before, and I don't think I'd have believed it, I, I, I just, I, I wouldn't. Listen, God uses the unfamiliar and our weak moments to teach us that we need to let go of the preconceived ideas of what we think we should do for God. God wants us to take down the walls of protection we built up, those walls that prevent us from opening up to people and be willing to let people into our lives and all of our messiness and all of our imperfections. And yes, that means being vulnerable. Well, what if they're weird? So what? Maybe they think you're weird. You guys would be weird together. You know, Kenny and I talked the other night the fact that how much Star Trek is so much better than Star Wars. It's true. You know what? We can be weird together. Listen, don't let your fear of failure prevent you from blessing others. Put away your preconceived ideas and let God use you to communicate His love to those around us. So here we have the disciples that had a preconceived idea as to what Jesus had come to do. And and Luke says that they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. And I'm sure they were afraid because they didn't want to hear what Jesus was saying. Jesus was talking about the cross and the disciples were focused on the kingdom. Jesus was talking about suffering and the disciples were talking about ruling and reigning. They felt that they were following the next king of Israel. Verse 46 makes it clear that this was their thought. You see, after Jesus says he's going to die and be betrayed... What are they doing? Are, 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 they, you know, are they praying? No, they're arguing. Look at verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. So they're going back and forth, disputing over which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're thinking of the crown and ignoring the cross. This brings us to our first point. Number one, their need for humility. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a sneaky suspicion that that Peter was probably the one that started the whole conversation. I can picture him saying, now, guys, when Jesus overthrows the Romans, you know, I'm going to be his right-hand guy, you know. I mean, I did walk on water, and the rest of you guys just stayed in the boat. And I can hear the rest of them saying, yeah, you walked, and then you sank, anchor boy. You went down to the bottom. You were all wet. Then Peter might have snapped back, but, but did you walk on water? And by the way, who had the revelation about Jesus being the Son of God? So there, they might have responded, yeah, I remember that. That was right before he said, get behind me, Satan, you, you know. <laughs> well, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be, oh, I'm going to be the greatest. I am, am not, am so, am not, am so. And yeah, Jesus is like, what is going on here? But it cracked me up to, to see these guys that are thinking this way. We also know that it was James and John who sent their mom to the Lord. He said, Lord, when you establish your kingdom, can my boy sit one on your right and one on your left hand? Thinking, oh, surely you'll listen to mom. I mean, mom's going to, yeah, mom. See, I, I, I doubt very seriously that, that any of us are going to go out to lunch after church today and have a discussion about who's the greatest in the church. I mean, can you picture that? Well, you know, I'm an usher. I help seek people. You know, that's pretty good, no? I'm a part of the children's ministry. Well, you know, I tithe $10. I'm the greatest, you know. And the thing is, we don't do that verbally, you know, but maybe we, we might think that stuff in our hearts. 
And it's just spiritual pride. It's pride. According to the book Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders, he writes this concerning pride. Pride takes on many forms, but spiritual pride is the most grievous. To become proud of spiritual gifts or leadership position is to forget that all we have is from God. All the position we occupy is by God's appointment. He goes on to say that the victim of pride is least aware of their sin. Then he gives three tests that, that, to see if you have a problem with pride. And let's take them. The first is out of, of precedence. And he asks the question, how do you react when someone else is selected for the position that you wanted or expected to get? When someone else is promoted in your place, another person's gifts seem to be greater than yours. Second test is sincerity. He writes, at times when we're most honest with ourselves, we often will admit problems and weaknesses. But how do you respond when others identify those same problems in you? And the third test is criticism. When you are criticized, does that lead you to immediate resentment and self-justification? Do you then, in turn, seek to criticize the critic? See, if we truly are honest, then we should measure ourselves by the life of Jesus, who, according to Philippians 2, verse 6-8, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now notice what Jesus did in verse 47 as this argument continues, as it's going on. Look at verse 47. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and sent him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. Now, this is interesting because of the way that we measure greatness today. You know, in sports, we measure greatness by, by the statistics and the records and the achievements, by their, their wins and their, and their losses. You know, you know, so many connected passes, so many baskets, you know, so many home runs. In business, it's measured in much the same way, sales and income, wins and losses. All of that can go to our heads read a story about the late Muhammad Ali when he was in his prime and he thought he was the greatest. One time when he was about to take off on an airplane flight, the stewardess reminded him to fasten his seatbelt. He came back brashly, Superman don't need no seatbelts. Well, the stewardess quickly came back, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> he humbled himself and fastened his seatbelts. See, even in ministry, we can measure greatness in the wrong way. You know, we might measure greatness by the size of a person's Bible study or the size of a church. Really, I think it has little to do with that individual and more to do with how God chooses to work in that particular place and that particular time. Because here we see Jesus giving us a new description of greatness. Greatness in God's kingdom is seen in receiving others as you would receive a child, he says. It's in others as you to relate to a child with love and compassion and understanding. I love uh, Robert Fulgham, who wrote uh, uh, in the Kansas City Times this little uh, uh, article. He says, Most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. These are the things that I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. 
I think we need to do that today. I mean, if we did that, we'd be fine. Because the writer there is capturing what Jesus meant when he said, unless you become like a little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Listen, I encourage you to go downstairs and hang out in the toddler room sometime. Are they talking and baby talk about who's going to be greatest in the toddler room? No, their biggest concern is, when is mom going to come back and get me? Their biggest concern is, you know, who can help me color? Or when is it snack time? That's their most major concern in the world. So when Jesus says, whoever receives a child receives me, what is his point? I mean, think about it. What can that child do for you? Nothing. Nothing. I appreciate William Barclay's comments on this. He says this, and I quote, A child has no influence at all. A child cannot advance a man's career, nor enhance a man's prestige. A child cannot give us things. It's the other way around. A child needs things. A child must have things done for him. And so Jesus is saying, if a man welcomes the poor, ordinary people, the people who have no influence and no wealth and no power, the people who need things done for them, then he's welcoming me. And more than that, he's welcoming God. You see, the moment a person starts thinking they are greater than someone else or another group of people, then that person will begin to look down on everyone else and and soon you're lifted up with pride. And that's what Jesus is saying we need to stay away from. The Bible teaches we are all equal at the foot of the cross. The cross is the great equalizer. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. All of us. And when that's our mindset, then and only then can we minister to others effectively. Because you realize it's not about you being the greatest or me being the greatest. It's about Jesus who is the greatest. And when you have that attitude as you walk with the Lord, you'll be seeking the Lord as how you might serve everyone else and bless everyone else and bless Him. Jesus said on another occasion that he who wanted to be great in the kingdom must be the servant of all. That would have made Jesus the greatest in this group because he was continually serving his disciples. But sadly, there are those who think they're they're, they're great or important and they'll come into a group like ours with an attitude that says, well, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? It's all about me. A good question to ask ourselves as believers is why do we come to church? Do we come here seeking to, to be served or to serve? So number one was humility. They were walking in their flesh, thinking only of themselves. They, they needed to learn to love one another if they were going to serve the Lord effectively. They also had to learn to love others that were not a part of their special group. And that brings us to our second point, how the disciples are like you and me. They needed to learn discernment. Because right after they've been arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom, then we look at verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Now, I think if I were the Lord and I were at that point and they're saying, hey, we saw them doing this, Lord. We saw them do that. I think I'd be going, oh, if I was the Lord, oh, no. Oh, no. Really, you guys? I mean, come on. But this is classic, classic because there are other people who are not a part of their group and John didn't like it. He didn't even acknowledge them as being a part of what they were doing. Have you ever done that? Do you ever find it hard to acknowledge that another church might be doing a great job? Another ministry might be doing a great work. They might be making a really good impact even though it's not a Calvary Chapel. So I think we, we can do the same thing John is doing here, but it's wrong. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic in the Catholic Church. I only knew 
Catholicism until I was born again. And then I went from the Catholic Church to Calvary Chapel, Riverside. Contemporary worship, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, study of, of the Bible, expository teaching. Man, I was going, man, this is amazing. This is, this is the key. This is what we all need. This is, this is awesome. It wasn't until I started pastoring out here in the Bible that I realized, listen, there's other ways in which Christians can worship and learn. Some very close to Calvary Chapel and some pretty different. Some not as laid back, some more traditional, some more topical in their teaching style, some more, more congregational run, where everything is voted on by the, by the church. Others are, or, others are elder run, where they can vote a pastor in and out if they want. Some guys have pulpits, some guys don't. Some guys sit and preach, some guys stand, some guys, you know, they walk back and forth and pace, and others don't even move a muscle. Some wear, wear robes, some play old hymns, and, 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 you know, different. Some have orchestras and football and choirs. And I remember coming out and going, okay, they need to learn to do it right. Okay, they, I'll show them what Calvary Chapel is all about. I'll show them the right way. But what God has shown me is that those these guys are different. I am so thankful for their diversity. I am thankful that God has raised up men who can minister in places that I could never minister to. That, that they, they love being a part of a, a congregational run church. Or they like the robes and they like the, like, like, like the, 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 the old hymns or whatever. And they're comfortable with that. Because what I realize is that I don't have the corner market on church life and service. But that's not our goal. Our goal is pretty simple. To know Jesus Christ and make Him known. Period. And if that's the goal of a church up the street that wears robes and sings only hymns, God bless them. I pray that God uses them mightily. But notice what Jesus says when John says, We forbade Him because He does not follow us. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Do not forbid Him, for He who is not against us is on our side. This goes back to to Second Timothy 3, 16, 17. Jesus is giving them instruction, reproof, correction. Basically saying as Christians, we're all on the same side. Understand, there are some basic truths for, for all Christians that we must hold fundamental. But there's plenty of room for disagreement on non-essentials. Essentials are things like the inspiration of Scripture. Fully inspired, it is the Word of God. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of believers to eternal life, to unbelievers until eternal damnation, His coming again. Those are essentials we must hold to. But things like church government, the style of music, the order of services, multiple other things, they're not essentials. So how did Jesus respond to His disciples needing discernment with discernment? He says, listen, he who is not against us is on our side. So number one, they needed humility. Number two, they needed discernment. This brings us to our third point. Number three, they needed compassion. Look at verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now, when the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians, uh, by the empire, it was renamed uh, Samaria. And the Jews that were held captive there intermarried with their captors. And their offspring became the, the Samaritans. Now, because of that, there's this great ethnic prejudice that existed between the Samaritans 
and the Jews who considered themselves pure and undefiled people. So that when Jesus and his Jewish disciples wanted to travel through Samaria, they were not welcomed. And we read they did not receive him. But what happened next is the real problem. It reveals a lack of compassion on the part of at least two of his disciples. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? I mean, can you relate to these guys? I know I can. Lord, do you want us to toast them? I mean, let's get them. Look how Jesus responds. I mean, does he say, you know what, you guys, I'm done. I'm done with it. First, you're arguing over who's the greatest. You're attacking this poor guy's ministry over here who's really with us. Now you want to call down fire from heaven and burn up the whole city. There's got to be another 12 guys someplace. You 12 over there. You come over here. You guys, you're gone. We, we got a new group over here. Now, I'm so thankful the Lord doesn't respond to us that way. I'd have been gone a long, long time ago. But again, Jesus responds with reproof, with correction, instruction, and righteousness. Look at verse 55. He turned and he rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now here's what's interesting to me. In James and John's response, we do see some good things here. I mean, there was an element of faith on their behalf. I mean, what they were suggesting was a pretty radical thing, calling fire down from heaven. Has anyone done that lately? You see, I do believe that there's an element of faith involved here. They did believe that if Jesus gave them the okay, they would have had the power to do this. If Jesus would have said, go for it, boys, I believe they would have had the faith to say, all right, you know, and that would have happened. But they were also submissive. They said, Lord, if you want us to do this, we will. If you don't, we won't. Just say the word submission. So they had faith, they said they had power, and they had submission. All good things. But the problem was the spirit was wrong. Because there was no compassion. No compassion. That's why they were called the sons of thunder. Do you want us to con- command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, Elijah did command fire to come down from heaven, but it was a totally different situation. In Second Kings chapter 1, King Hezekiah was, was hurt to the point of death. And instead of seeking the Lord, he started seeking these false gods. And Elijah warned him and said, because you're seeking these false gods, you're going to die. Well, he didn't like that. And so he sends 50 men to go arrest Elijah. And and when they come up to arrest Elijah, you know, that's when Elijah commanded fire to come down from heaven. And those 50 were were toast. But then Hezekiah didn't give up. He sends another 50 men and, and the same thing, toast. And then the third 50. Now, if I was a part of the third 50, I'd be going... Let's be real nice, okay? Let's, let's talk real, really, really kind. And they, they were not burned up. But here's the point. The hundred men that were burned up was not because Elijah was just passing through a city. It wasn't because Elijah was being inconvenienced. What the disciples wanted to do was nothing at all like what Elijah did, but they were trying to, to make it fit. Listen, you can get into big trouble when you try to make scriptures fit your own plans and purposes and you use them against people. The disciples really misunderstand Scripture doctrine. So again, the Lord had to reprove and correct and instruct them. 
Boys, put away your fireballs. Okay, it's not going to happen. Look at verse 55 again. He says, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And yet think about how often we do the same thing. Where we don't have the right spirit in our heart, in our attitude, and could be seeking to destroy rather than to save. Maybe we don't ask God to blast them with fire, but perhaps we blast them with Scripture. Man, we come armed with the truth and we're ready to point out the errors and the faults in others, ready to tell someone how wrong they are. And the problem comes when we, when we start using Scripture for that. To blast someone with the word as to destroy them is not what God would have us to do. But it's amazing to me when I get in a conflict with someone, you get in a conflict with someone, upset with someone, how many verses you can find in the Bible that just describe that person you are upset with. And then we use it against them. Listen, brother, Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Lord just gave me this verse to show you how stupid you are for not listening to me. And, and we take those verses. See, see how easy it is to, to, to blast people with fire, calling fire down upon them. God help us because we're, all we're doing is burning them in the process. Remember Romans fourteen nineteen. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another, build one another up, encourage one another, not destroy. James and John had the wrong spirit, the wrong heart, added with zero compassion. Someone rightfully said once, God has been a, the victim of a lot of bad PR and a lot of it has come from his friends. So how does Jesus respond to this one? With compassion. Again, verse 55 he rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What a lesson. Jesus responds with right doctrine, with rebuke and instruction and compassion. Listen, maybe you've been on the receiving end of a gentle rebuke from the Lord. Understand, compassion is at the heart of Jesus. He loves you. He wants to work in your heart. See, the behavior of these Samaritans was precisely why Jesus came into this world. They needed to be saved, not destroyed. And when you understand God's character and God's love, that He is, according to Psalm 145.8, gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy, then you're going to want to have that same compassion towards one another. You understand all that God has forgiven you of and has done in your life. It's humbling. And you want to use that discernment to edify, to build up, to encourage, not to tear down or seeking to destroy or calling fire down from heaven. Because that's not the Lord's heart. The Lord's heart is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, you might look at these disciples and relate to them feeling like, man, okay, I've lacked some humility in my life. I've been harsh. I've been insensitive. I've certainly lacked discernment, lacking tenderness and compassion. But the good news is those characteristics will be changed as you continue to spend time in the Lord and spend time with the Lord. Because as you spend time with the Lord, you become more like Him. It doesn't happen quickly, but it'll happen with certainty. We know that John was known as a, a son of thunder, but he was transformed but, into the apostle of love. Just read his epistles, his letters. It's all about just, just the love of God. How did that happen? By hanging around Jesus. And we're encouraged because we know that Jesus did not give up on his disciples. He hung in them with them and he will hang in there with us. Now, after looking at these three points, humility, 
discernment and compassion. I wonder if, if I were one of Jesus' disciples, if I had a chance to physically follow and live with Christ, how would I have fared after two and a half years as a Christian? Well, I became a Christian almost 39 years ago. It'll be 39 years in October. Prior to that, I knew about Jesus. But I didn't have a personal relationship. He wasn't my Lord and my Savior. It wasn't until I truly gave my heart to Him that I developed a love for God's Word like I'd never had before. It was a great time of growing, and I loved it, but it was also a lot of times of ups and downs. I can relate. I had a lot of zeal without knowledge. I remember telling my mom, I canceled my life insurance policy because the Lord's coming back tomorrow. He's coming back any moment, you know, and and, and then I kept, you know, Mom, you're going to go to hell if you're just, just a zeal and, and just preaching at her. And, and, and praise God that she came to the Lord, but it wasn't through me. It was all God. But, but you realize that, hey, we've all been there. We've all, we've all been at that place. And, 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 and you know, there's times where, where you know, we, we learn these lessons of pride and, 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 and no discernment, not showing compassion. But the great thing is, is, as we stay grounded in God's Word, as we continue to seek His faith, he, faith, he is faithful to adjust those areas, to tweak those areas in our lives, and to make those changes. To rebuke us when necessary, to, to, to instruct us, to correct, to correct, and to teach. And He continues to do that work in my life and in your life. It doesn't matter if you've been a, a Christian one year, five years, fifty years. It doesn't matter. The truth is, none of us have arrived. We're still in this discipleship program, learning how to wait on and depend upon our Lord as He stretches us and matures us, being molded by His gentle, loving, but firm hands, needing to stay childlike in our mindset and our thinking. And on our graduation day, it's the day He takes us home to be with Him. And I can't wait for that. I want to close with this and enter into a time of communion. After looking at these things, you know, sometimes we can feel like, man, Lord, man, I've done these things. I've been there. I'm even feeling bad to this day about some of the things that I've done. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My point is this, we can, we can get overwhelmed by guilt and, and, and just our consciousness play, oh man, I was like that, I was this, this, but, but listen, Paul says, forget those things which are behind us. Let's press on to the high calling of God uh, in, in Christ Jesus. Do what Paul did. You know, we, we must be those that say, I'm not going to dwell on my past, I'm going to look to what the Lord has for me. Now, as we enter into a time of communion, it's a great opportunity for us to do that, to come before the Lord, open our hearts before Him, and recognize that, that God is looking into our hearts. And He wants us to examine our hearts and confess if there's any sin in there, anything going on in our life. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So communion is a great time for that. We're going we're gonna to pass out the bread. We're going to hold on to it. And we're going to partake together as a church. We'll pass out the, the juice, hold on to it, partake as, together as a church. But, but communion is designed for believers. It's remembering what Jesus Christ did for us as believers. So if you've, not, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, and you may have no plans on doing so this morning, then I would ask that as the trays come around, that you just let them pass by you 
and, and don't take a hold of them. And, and because the Bible speaks of judgment that comes upon you, taking this unworthily. But here's a better solution. Give your life to Jesus Christ today. Surrender your heart to him. For, stop running. Stop trying to do all your own thing. Say, Lord, I want to give you my life. I want to give you my heart. I want, to, I want my sin forgiven. You do that today. Christ will come in. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll, he'll give you his Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. Then you can partake with us. And for us, as I said already, as believers, it's a time for us to, to examine our hearts and get right with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time, for your word, how powerful it is to change our lives. We thank you, Lord, that throughout your word we see that there are no perfect people, Lord. But there are people that you love and you're discipling and you're training and you're helping us. Lord, I thank you for the love that we see poured out in these disciples to learn these lessons. Because it is all about you, Lord. You are the greatest. And Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that has joined us, that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet, Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, that they would see their need for you, Lord, their need to give their life to you, they would, they would surrender to you today. Well, I had to bow and rise or close. Is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today. You want your sin forgiven. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? It's just between you and the Lord. Father, thanks for this time, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship you, Lord, through communion, remembering the cross. Lord, we give you this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.